The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are going to be uh, looking at Ephesians 1 tonight. So if you have a Bible, we can turn to Ephesians 1. If not, it's going to, all of the relevant verses are going to be up on the screen, and so no problem. Let me pray for God to meet us. Father, as we turn to your word, we ask that you would feed us from your word tonight, God. We ask that we would learn more of Christ and we would delight in who you are. Father, meet us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you think that God likes movies and TV? You might be, asking, you might be wondering if I'm going to be preaching against movies and TVs. Uh, no, we're not doing that. But I asked the question just to, to bring out the point. What do you think God thinks about stories? What do you think God thinks about novels and storytelling? Do you ever think about God as a storyteller? That's kind of the real question. Do you guys ever think about God as being a great storyteller? Well, we all love movies and, and TV, um, and if you don't, I can give you some great TV shows that'll get you hooked. Um, but we... Uh, we love stories and, and movies and TV and just this great, the great drama of stories because God himself is the original storyteller. We're made to be like God, and God loves to tell stories. Do you ever think about God sitting by the campfire telling a great story with the fire glow on his face? God loves to tell stories. He's a great story. He's the great storyteller. He's the greatest storyteller, and he's created this world to be like his art brush and his canvas, and his guitar, and his story. This whole world is God's great story of his glory, and we are a part of that story that he's telling. God loves to tell stories. Now, why do I start out talking about this? The reason I start out is because I want us to, to center in on God's story of who he is and what he's doing, and I want to use that as a part of what we're talking about um, but what we're going to be looking at tonight, and what we're going to be starting tonight, is a series on our eight core values as a church plan, as a church. What are the things um, that are a part of defining who we are, that are part of our DNA um, as a church? And what we're going to be talking about tonight um, is our, con our reformed convictions, our beliefs about the sovereignty of God, and that's one of the components of our DNA is a church plant, but that's all part of the series. I'm not really great with story, with like names and stuff, so the name I came up for this, the, the preaching series is Rooted, Foundations for Mission. I don't know if you like that or not, but Rachel likes it, so, and Rachel's going to Thailand, so, you know, like, <laughs> she's got like an upper hand on all of us. We, uh, we're going to, it's, so the series is Rooted, Foundations for Mission, and I know that you guys all probably have our eight core values uh, memorized, if not tattooed on your arm. Uh, you probably do your devotions out of them all the time. But if you're like me, you probably need to be reminded of what they are. <laughs> I, I designed them and I forget them. Yeah, so. so just to kind of give you an overview, these are our eight core values as a church. And we're going to be preaching on the first one tonight. But our eight core values, really quickly, a vibrant reformed tradition. So we're not cold. Logic, logic on fire, a vibrant reform tradition, gospel-centered doctrine and preaching. That means that in the heart of everything that we do and think and believe, 
We long for the gospel to be central, the gospel to be applied, um, Christ and the gospel to be a part of who we are. Continuationist pneumatology, which <laughs> I'm sure nobody knows those words. Uh, can, that just means we believe that God continues to give his, give his spirit, he continues to give his, uh, the gifts of prophecy, the spiritual gifts, in addition to all the other works of the spirit. We long for the broad work of the Holy Spirit, so that's not only from salvation and the fruits of the Spirit, but the gifts of the Spirit as well. So we want, we want as much of the Spirit as God will give us, and we believe that that's a part of what the Bible teaches for the church. Complementarian leadership in the home and church. I'm sorry that I picked such big words. I did not mean to. <laughs> Complementarian leadership in the home and church. It means God designed men and women equally, of equal value and dignity, and he gave different roles to men and women. He called men to lead in the home and in the church. In the, and for women to give enthusiastic support, uh, elder-led church government. Uh, that means that we believe that God's called a plurality of elders to, to lead a church, to be responsible for pastoring a church. Um, and that's how the church is led. That's my son. <laughs> Missional life and church planting. We believe that God's on mission and God loves to to spread the fame of Jesus and that he primarily uses local churches to do that. Um, we believe that God uses the local church as an expression of Jesus Christ to, a, to an area. And so we love to plant churches. Uh, I know that we are just a church plant, but I am praying that God willing in the next five years that we will be able to plant another church. I want us to be a part of church planting constantly. It's the way God advances his mission. Seven, vital connection with Sovereign Grace churches regionally. So Sovereign Grace churches is our denomination. That's how um, I'm ordained through. That's how the church plan is beginning. They've invested a considerable amount in helping this become a reality. But it's also the way God preserves our health. God uh, strengthens our church. And it's how we're going to be church planting and doing foreign missions and other things. Um, and then eight, we got eight up there. Okay. Uh, enthusiastic collaboration and broad kingdom work. Uh, we are not the only game in town, guys. God loves to use other people. And I love to be a part of what God's doing. So if somebody doesn't agree with us on this or that, or somebody's not a part of Sovereign Grace and they love Jesus, man, let's get it on. Let's go. Like, I love to work with God's people. So we are a part of working with God's people across the board. Um, so seven of those are, the first seven are Sovereign Grace. Sovereign Grace Churches has our seven shared values and then the eighth one is kind of implicit and a part of who we are, and I like to be explicit. So we're just going to add that one on there as our eight shared values. So that's kind of, that's an overview. I know that that might seem a bit heady, but I, I want it to be kind of a part of, we just want to be upfront about who we are, what's defining us as a church, how, we, how we're building. And what I want to do for tonight is to begin on that first one, a vibrant reform tradition, and really kind of narrow down on why that makes a difference for us. And that's why I want to start out with this vision of God's the great storyteller. Because uh, we're not trying to define, let me just say this, we're, these eight shared values, and specifically this one, these aren't battle lines. These aren't um, weapons that we're trying to beat each other with, or beat other churches with, for that matter. Um, these are a part of how we believe God's building us and using us. These are our convictions. But... Um, Man, if you disagree with any of these points and you have questions about them, I would love to talk with you about that. It's really, um, I hold these convictions very strongly. Um, 
I believe these are biblical. I'd love to talk with you about why I think they're biblical. But if you disagree, you can totally be a part of this church plant, this church. That's not, these aren't battle lines. These aren't, you know, swords to kill each other with. These are just kind of a part of, like, who we are. And uh, I believe that they matter, and I want to convince you of why they matter and show you why they matter. But um, if you don't agree, that's, that's okay. <laughs> so, and I think that's specifically important because when you talk about the Reformed tradition, the Reformed tradition is larger than Calvinism, but Calvinism is certainly a part of that. Um, and I want to start with God as the great storyteller because um, I am not interested in uh, beating each other up over the Calvinism-Arminianism debate. Like, that's, like, not... I've been a part of those conversations before. I do, I do not get any pleasure from that. Um, I get a lot of pleasure from talking about God as the great storyteller. And I think that the best of the Reformed tradition looks at this is God's glory in the world, and we are a part of what God is doing to glorify himself. And so as God is telling the story of what the world is about, who he is, and who he's revealed himself to be, that's what we want to focus on. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about some of the details of that, but uh, at the heart of this is an infinitely happy God who loves to save broken and needy and sinful people and make them a part of his family. Uh, so we're going to be talking about that tonight, the sovereignty of God and how the sovereignty of God roots us in the character of God for the success of mission. So is that all clear? We're a church point, so we can kind of be informal. Is everybody on board? Yeah? Okay. So we're going to be looking at, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to look at how other verses kind of feed into this and are a part of uh, this vision of what we're holding out here. Uh, but Ephesians 1 is going to be our primary text. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, that's in Jesus, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we were who the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, have believed in him, were sealed with his promised Holy Spirit, who is the, inheritance of, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is a marvelous passage. This is deep and rich and thick. And if you think that's kind of wordy, in the original it's a sentence 202 words long. So it just like goes on without a period. Thankfully we have periods in the paragraph. But what we're going to look at, we're going to look at three things here. We're going to look at the sovereignty of God and how this, the sovereignty of God, how God's sovereignty secures us in his story. How the sovereignty of God satisfies us with his story and how the sovereignty of God sends us with his story. 
So I hope, every, I hope we're all tracking together. Let's start by looking at how God's sovereignty secures us in his story. So I know this is a massive section, but really what's going on here, what's going on, if you were to kind of take this all down and say, okay, what's, what's the main point of what, God, what Paul's doing here? The main point of what Paul's doing here is he is delighting in the story of God. He's delighting in God's story. I mean, he's talking about all these you know, confusing clauses and sentences at all, verbs, and has this all fit together. All, all of what Paul's talking about, he is delighting. He's enjoying God's story. And you, you see this, that it's God's story because of all the, the action verbs, all the action that's going on in this passage. And who's the actor? It's, it's God who's the main actor. Uh, there are like maybe 10 or so action words here. Verse 3, God blessed us. Verse 4, God chose us. Verse 5, God predestined us. Verse 6, God blessed us. He blessed us again. He can't even do it once. He does it twice. Verse 8, God gives us his grace. He lavishes it, lavished it on us. Verse 9, God is making known and setting forth. Verse 11, God has predestined us and works all things. Verse 13, and then he seals us with his Holy Spirit. God is doing a lot in, this verse, in these verses. And you know what we're doing? Verse 13, we believe. That's all we do. <laughs> This is all about what God's doing. This is God's story. This is God's ultimate story. And at the heart of what it is, is God's story to save us. And when it comes to God saving us, he's the one who's ultimately in control. That's what this verse, these verses are holding out. And the nature, of, the nature of our salvation is because God chose us to believe. God chose us because, if you just want to look over, this is chapter 2, verse 1. We were dead in our trespasses. Without God choosing us, we're just going to stay dead. Like dead, dead, you know? Like, not like Monty Python, like almost dead, but like really dead. Uh, so unless God chooses us, we're going to stay dead. But God chooses us, and that choosing, the theological term for that is election. God chooses us, and that when God chooses us, election, you just could call it, uh, God chooses who will be united to Christ by faith before the foundations of the world. Uh, Wayne Grudem uses this definition. Uh, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology is like the best, like 30 bucks you could spend in your life. Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, and that would include faith, not on account of any foreseen merit, but only because of his good sovereign pleasure. You see, here in verse 4 you have, even as he chose us, in him, that's in Christ, before the foundations of the world. So that's God choosing us so that we would be blameless before him. And then in verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him. So I think if you were to kind of like work this out as just kind of like an equation, it's those who are chosen are blameless. And those who, are, those who believe are blameless. Those who believe are those who are chosen. God chooses, and it's God's choosing that causes us to believe. And God longs for us to be blameless in Christ, so he chooses us in Christ so that we would believe and be blameless. So that's how Paul can say in verse 5, he predestined us, and he had that little unfortunate kind of break there. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons 
through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So it's according to his purpose, according to his will that he chooses us, not for anything in us. Then you have verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things in your life, if you believe in Christ, all things in your life are working for faith in Christ. God chose us so that we would know him and treasure Christ and believe in Christ. That's how people who are, as Paul talks about in chapter 2, verse 1, who are dead, become alive. There's nothing in a dead man that would make them alive. There's nothing in Frankenstein that would make him come alive, or Frankenstein's monster, to be correct. Frankenstein's monster that makes him come alive. It's God himself that gives the power that raises people from, from death to life. So, they have Paul saying over in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That's, that's all of us by, by birth, even the cutest baby, is by birth born hostile to God. Those who are in the flesh cannot, they cannot please God. And faith is a part of one of those things that pleases God. And so you have Paul just, just a few verses later in verse 29. For, the, for those whom he foreknew, those whom God chose to know ahead of time, chose to know before creation. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, might be the, that he, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, God, God wants Jesus to be glorified by those whom he's saving. And he has decided who is going to glorify God. But you see, the point of this isn't that God's just kind of like cold calculations about who's going to be in and who's going to be out. We're all dead. Nobody wants to be saved by nature. We're all hostile towards God. So it's not like everybody's longing to be with God and God's kind of putting his hand out. No, this is God's kindness to reach out and save men and women who would hate God otherwise. He bursts in them a, a new life. And this isn't just kind of God doing it like, I guess I'll save some people. The language that Paul uses in, in Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual, every spiritual blessing. <laughs> Let me just say, an application of this is to delight in the silliness of children because God delights in the silliness of his children. <laughs> God delights to save people. That's the point of what Paul's talking about here. God doesn't just kind of do it because he has to. God loves to save people. He delights in saving people. He delights in, in revealing, them, revealing to them Jesus Christ. So, I know this raises lots of questions. I know this is not, not easy. This is new for you. Um, but I, one question that came to mind, an objection to this. So is everything out of control? What's the point? I guess everything out of my control. If God's in control, God saves me outside of my control. Is this, is there any point to this? I think there's a mysterious, glorious thing going on behind your salvation. And that we can't know the answers for everything. But I don't think that this means that life is pointless. Actually, it, it grounds your life in the biggest story ever told. It grounds your life in the goodness of God. That's why Paul says there, verse 28 of Romans, 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. If God's purpose is sovereign and totally in control, your life can rest in his hands. You can rest in his goodness. You can rest in God's love for you because he's the one telling the story and he's the one that can tell the better story. He can, he can tell such a good story that you, who rejected God, will become a son or daughter of the living God. You know, it's kind of like, um, since we're talking about stories, my mind goes to being to characters and stories. And so, if you could imagine being a character in your favorite story. Now, I don't know what your favorite story is. I have several, but... Um, Maybe because of the recent movie, I'm, Star Wars came to mind as like an illustration of this. Like, could you imagine being like, like I know you could imagine being like Harrison Ford, so that's not quite the same. But, but could you imagine being like Han Solo or Luke Skywalker in Star Wars? Like, what would it be like to be that character? You know the whole story. What would it be like? Let's just say like you picked one of the movies, like A New Hope, and you picked it, and you're like, what would it be like to be Luke Skywalker? in A New Hope um, at any point in the movie. Just, you know, like what would that be like to be him? And then, now let's take this, the, the, what we've been talking about and apply it to that. What would, it, what would Luke Skywalker's thoughts be about George Lucas? Like, so just to kind of like, you know, just kind of like break all the categories. What would it be like, to, like for a character in a story to know and have thoughts about the author of the story? You see what I'm saying? Like what would it be like to relate to the author of the story? Well, if you're in Star Wars, I would be incredibly afraid because George Lucas totally ruined his movies, you know. <laughs> but that's just a different argument. But see, when it comes to, the, but it applies to this because we actually know God. We know what God's like. We know who he is. He's revealed himself. We know the character of God. We know that God's not going to be like George Lucas and rewrite things. God is good. He's gracious and loving and kind. And so... Us as characters in God's story, if we're in God's sovereign story for his glory, he's revealed himself to us so we can know him and trust him and rely on him. So that the sovereignty of God doesn't become something that um, is scary, but it actually becomes something that secures us. It gives us foundations and strengthens our soul. You know, I know that horrible, tragic things happen. I mean, Rachel was going over to Thailand to, ca to care for some of the most vulnerable people in the world. Um, you know, but I don't know what that, what your, with your experience of tragedy, maybe you can think of like questions about like the problem of evil, like bad things happening. Like, how can we trust a God, a sovereign God, when bad things happen? I think, I think what this does. Believing in the sovereignty of God, I believe what it does is that it secures our souls in a God who loves us, even when he writes a story full of pain and suffering. It actually, it gives our suffering meaning. It gives the trials and the pain of our life meaning that God himself, that God himself would, long, would, be, would walk next to us and care for us what I'm not saying is that God causes evil and pain and suffering in your life just to kind of like flick you like an ant or something like that. It's not the way God does things. 
But God writes your story in such a way that those things that happen that are most vulnerable and painful and difficult, they ultimately find a meaning and a resolution and a redemption in Jesus Christ himself. Did you see that? Did you see that here in, in Ephesians? You talk about he, he longs to give us the riches of his glorious grace in Jesus Christ, which can sound kind of like a Hallmark card, but the riches of his grace actually meets us most deeply at the suffering in our life. This Tim Keller, I, had, I think he has this great little quote here. Christianity teaches that contra or in contrast to fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Contra to Buddhism, suffering is real. Contra to karma, suffering is often unfair. But contra to secularism, suffering is meaningful. There is a purpose to it, and if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. To love and know the sovereignty of God and to know this God personally gives stability. It gives security. It strengthens your soul, even in the darkest days. I mean, even in the Psalms, you have God giving voice to the deepest and darkest points of our lives. We're going to return to that in a little bit. But I think that what, what the sovereignty of God does, it's glorious that God has sovereignly saved us, but I think it also gives security for our souls and, the life, and our life with God. So secondly, the thing that we see here for, um, from Ephesians, excuse me, God's sovereignty satisfies us with his story. See, God isn't indifferent to us. Like, this whole thing about Reformed theology and Calvinism and all that is that, like, it can kind of feel like it's, like, cold logic. Like, we're just going to logic chop this thing up, and we're going to put things in order and, like, win, win the argument. But that's not the point here. God's sovereignty satisfies us with his story, and he intends it to satisfy us. And I want to show you how God intends it to satisfy us. So I want you to... I want you to look with me at verse 7 here. In him, he's talking about Jesus. In Jesus, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. See, if we're, we're taking this whole idea of God writing a story. Do you see what God did here? God wrote himself into the story. God wrote himself. He wrote his own son into the story. God wrote his own son into the story in such a way that his son would die with his blood gushing out of him, out of love for the people that God has chosen to save. See, actually, in Acts, we've been going through Acts and our, and our um, missional communities. Do you guys remember in Acts 2, Peter says, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite foreknowledge and plan of God. You, this Jesus that was crucified. God planned. God wrote a story. He got, God wrote a story that he wrote himself into it. The author, the author of life wrote himself in as a character. The character, the only innocent character that would then die for the guilty people in the story. God wrote himself, his own son, into the story, and his son died for the guilty. 
His son died so that God's glory would be most seen. This God who loves justice, this God who loves to give mercy, would give his son to die on a cross for us. He wrote his son into the story so that his son would bring those people into fellowship with God himself to know him. See, our our election is absolutely by grace. And it's that same grace that put Jesus on the cross. You see, this God, he, he puts his own skin on the line. He puts his own skin on the line out of love. So you see that in verse 5? In love, he predestined us. This is not like a, you know, some sort of logic-chopping cold thing. In love. You might say that the cross was death by love. God put his son out of love for us. He predestined us to be adopted through the death of his own son. I, I stand in awe of this God. This God who makes the whole universe a stage for his glory. This God who upholds the universe by the power of his word. This God would send his own son to die in our place. He wrote himself into the story. And he wrote it so that we would be happy. We would be happy in God because God is a happy God. So let me just, let me take this again and I want to apply this again to suffering. I want to turn again, take this, and I just want you to know, the reason I'm doing this is because I want to make this, this value for us, as a church, I want to make it live and breathe and have wind behind the sails. I don't want us to be kind of like a book on the corner and the shelf. I want us to have grit and meaning in our lives. And I think the most important place that all of our doctrines and our beliefs about the Bible come to bear is when we engage suffering, when things seem difficult and unfair. And so what I want, that's why I want to keep applying this to suffering. So let me, let's again look with with Tim Keller at this quote, Jesus lost all his glory so that we could be clothed in it. He was shut out so that we could get access. He was bound and nailed so that we could be free. He was cast out so we could approach. And Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that can really destroy you. That is being cast away from God. He took it so that now all suffering comes into your life will only make you great. A lump of coal under pressure becomes a diamond, and the suffering of a person in Christ only turns you into something gorgeous. It is because God predestined his son to die on a cross that those who believe in Christ could find meaning and purpose and lasting value to their suffering. You see, we... We are not left to the, the whims of the world. Things, uh, things don't happen uh, randomly. Things happen by purpose. And God's purpose in suffering is to, to conform us to Christ. But in suffering, we have a Christ who's experienced it with us. So we're not alone. God's in control and we can trust him. Just as Jesus trusted this God, Jesus trusted his own father 
in sending him to the cross. We can trust the Father with Jesus. Second way this applies is that everything is written <coughs> excuse me, by a Father who loves us. This, is, uh, this enters into a category of teaching called the providence of God, God's providence. It's God's control over everything, God's control over the universe, God's control over every circumstance of your life. One of our kind of founding doctrinal centers is a, a document called the Heidelberg Catechism. And the Heidelberg Catechism is like this Q&A setup, so it asks a question and then answers it. And question 27 is, what do you understand by the providence of God? The answer, and I hope this stirs faith in your soul. The almighty and ever-present God, the almighty and ever-present power of God, by which God upholds the world, as with his hand, heaven and earth, and all, creation, all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruit and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, so everything that you talk about in your wedding vows, all that stuff, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. See, there is no random event in the universe. There's no random event that ever happens in your life. We sometimes will kind of flip when we talk about something, well, that was random. Hey, a random question. I'm not trying to police how we use our language or anything like that, but we talk about things being random all the time. Nothing in your life Nothing. Nothing from the color of your clothes, nothing to the color of your eyes, to the whether you have hair or not. Nothing in your life is by chance. <coughs> nothing is random. It is all as this as this so clearly just I love how this says, it comes to us by his fatherly hand. We know who this father is. We know who God has revealed himself to be. I mean, sixty-six books. What, you know, 1,800 chapters, or not chapters, it's a long, it's a long, long time for God to reveal who he is. You know, I just passed my ordination exam, so it's like all gone now, you know? Like, <coughs> yeah, my friend Joel Story would rebuke me for that. But um, we, uh, we have a clear, loving picture of who God is in the scriptures. And it's this God's fatherly hand that governs your life. <laughs> Not only should you feel secure in that, but that should, that should satisfy your soul with the presence of God, the love of God, the goodness of God, that he, who needs nothing. God does not need anything. But he has written such a story that you are satisfied with him, that he would give you himself to be your satisfying joy for life. He is our loving Father. And so then, the third thing we see here, <coughs> excuse me, I'm sorry. It's this, uh, you know, cold and all that stuff that's been going around. It's the winter. Um, let's look at verse 12 and 13 here. The third thing that we see here is God's sovereignty sends us with his story. Verse 12 and 13. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. 
In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Do you see the progression here? <coughs> there's, there's an advance of those who believe in God, who trust in Christ. There's an advance of the gospel here. There's the people who believe first, so that you know, be the folks in Acts 2. And then there's the people in Ephesus, the Gentiles, who were not even close to Jerusalem when all that went down. They too, God opened their hearts to believe in God, to believe in Christ. See, at the heart of this passage, this, this advance of the gospel, God is doing the evangelism. God is doing the advance. God is opening hearts and changing people's hearts to believe in Christ. God is the one that's leading. And rather than just kind of like, you know, like, like, like going, like, God, do evangelism. Actually, what's happening is we are being conformed into the image of the God who is proactively pursuing people. We're, we're conformed into the image of this God who pursues and loves people. We're being conformed to be like the evangelist God. This is God's mission. God is the one leading this. And we, King's Cross Church and every other gospel preaching church in this city, in this area, if we get the pleasure of joining God and being conformed to be like this God. So, I think that this is, this is how God does evangelism. God is the one who changes hearts. And it's through using means. Do so you see that in verse 13? <clears throat> in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. So you also believed in God. And how did you believe in God? You heard the word of truth. Do you see that? You heard the word of truth. So God uses means. So that so it's not that there was those who originally believed and then suddenly, spontaneously, out of nothing, all these other believers popped up. No, these people who believed in God shared the word of truth with the people in Ephesus and they became believers. God uses his people to spread his message and to change hearts and to bring people to believe in Christ. He uses people like us. Uh, if you ever get concerned about whether you're gifted for evangelism or not, just take hope that the Apostle Paul put somebody so deeply into sleep that he died during one of his sermons and they had to pray for him to be raised from the dead. I, hopefully I don't ever put somebody to sleep that bad. <laughs> so take heart. God uses weak and broken and needy people just like you and me to spread the word of truth, verse 13, so that those whom he has predestined will believe. I think what this does is it grounds our evangelism in a, in a rest and assurance that God's the one who works. God's the one who does the work of changing hearts. And I think it relieves us of having to feel that pressure. But if you feel, <clears throat> here's the thing. Reformed theology sometimes will be called, like it will be said, that undermines the value of, of evangelism and missions. And I think, I think I've made a good case, if I could say so myself. I think we are making a good case that the way God does evangelism is he uses people just like you and me to fulfill his sovereign purposes. And God's the one who saves people. But I want, I want to convince you from Scripture itself because I don't want to be building off of logic and extrapolation. So it, if you, it'll be on the screen. But you see this playing out in Acts 16 where Paul is sharing the gospel and so, verse, verses 11 through 15, Paul and Luke, this is Paul and Luke who are traveling around doing missionary work. So, setting, 
sail for Troas, we made, that's Paul and Luke, we made a direct voyage to, uh, to Simothrus, and the following day at Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in that district of Macedonia and, Roman, uh, and a Roman colony. We remained in the city for some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we were supposed to when we, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the woman, to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman called Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. So this, this woman is loaded. She's rich. She's selling purple goods, which is like selling oil today. The Lord, as she, as, so she, uh, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Now see here, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, her and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Do you see what happened there? That Paul and Luke were faithful to do the mission that God had called them to do. Things working? Oh. Sorry, I think what happened is the quotation. You know how like a quotation marks will sometimes get mixed in translations? Um, so they were being faithful to be obedient to God to share the gospel. And then it's God, the God, God himself is the one who opened Lydia's heart to believe and to trust in Christ. That's where faith came from. It wasn't because Lydia somehow had an extra grace to somebody who didn't. It's because God chose to open her heart to believe in Christ. And that's what God does through us in all of our life. So again, I think what this does is it reprieves us in our mission together here in Manchester for feeling like other people's salvation depends on us. It depends on our skill. Certainly we can get better. But it, it relieves us from feeling like we are the ones responsible for, the pe- for people's salvation. So you see, God's sovereignty is this great refreshing reality that sets us, not only secures us in Christ but it gives us confidence for the mission ahead. So again, let me just kind of end here. Um, you guys have been very patient. Let me just end by saying this. If you disagree on this, I would love to talk. I'm not, these aren't battle lines. I would love to talk and learn, and I'd love to talk with these things more. There are a million questions that come out of this. I'd love to talk about all of them. I'm not going to have the answer for all of them, um, but... I would love to talk about this more. We're going to go over this on, on our missional community groups this week. So if you have questions, we can talk about them there. <clears throat> but I think, let me just leave us with this. I think behind all of this, we see this God who is telling his glory story so that he would be glorified and that it's in his sovereignty that we find security and satisfaction and sending to be with this God, to, sh- to share God to share Christ. This is an amazing reality that God himself is using our lives and our world to display his glory, to display the glory of Christ, and God is the one that's in control. We can rest and trust him as he uses us, not only to save us and the people around us, but to advance his fame. And we find this, I think, we find this picture resting even in the words of Paul at the end of Romans 11, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, 
We thank you for your word to us. We thank you that you have given us your grace. We thank you that you have united us to Christ. God, would you open our hearts to receive you afresh. And Father, as we now take the Lord's Supper together, would you feed us anew from the gospel. In Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.